We're going to continue on in the book of Proverbs, and uh, this will be our last session in the book of Proverbs. I figure if we've been through 10 and you haven't figured out how to learn biblical wisdom, you're just not going to figure it out. So here we go. Uh, w- one of my favorite things to do in life is to mess with Carrie Buck, our music pastor. I feel like you guys build him up with your communication cards, and Carrie, that was such a great song. We love the choir. I saw one comment that said it was the voice of an angel singing today. And so as you build him up, I feel like it's my role to bring him back down to earth. And so anytime I get a chance to mess with Carrie, I'm going to mess with Carrie. That's just something I enjoy doing. And you can know that Carrie gets frustrated when he starts doing this. Like if you see him on the stage doing this, you know he's nervous, he's just scratching. And so anytime I can get him to do that, it's wonderful. So we were coming back from a pastor's conference this past, I think, February, and we were on a plane, and he was sitting not directly in the seat in front of me, but in the front to the left, so like caddy corner almost. And then next to me was this big football player who went down for a college visit and was on his way back, and um, Carrie was sitting right in front of him. And so we board the plane, we're getting ready to come back home, and I noticed that Carrie's seat wouldn't lock in position, Right? And so you have these seats on an airplane where you sit here, but if you want to recline, you sit here. And it's like a difference of like a half an inch, so I don't get it at all. And so I took the opportunity to mess with Carrie. I'm like, sir, you've got to scoot your seat up. He, he has no leg room. And he's like, well, I'm trying. I'm like, sir, you have to scoot it. You're, you can't do that. And, and I keep going, and I'm, I'm just having a good time, right? right? I'm like, sir, you cannot lean back on this gentleman. And, and the stewardess comes by, and I'm like, yes. I'm getting him in trouble. And and Carrie's like, listen, my seat won't lock in position from here to here. Like, can you do something about it? She goes, no problem. At first, we thought he was getting moved to first class, which would have really upset me. (laughs) But they moved him. So they saw him stand up and go to a different part of the plane. So everybody knew it was Carrie's problem that I caused. And the stewardess says, no problem. And we're sitting there in the plane, get ready to take off. About 10 minutes roll by. And the pilot gets on the phone and says, uh, hey, guys, I want to let you know we're having some technical difficulties. It'll be a little bit. Well, 45 minutes later, an individual came with an Allen wrench, lifted the seat up, turned it a half turn, and we were good to go. But apparently with the plane, you can't take off until everything is perfect. And so my, my speech, messing with Carrie, caused us 45 minutes for all 100 people on the plane. <laughs> I felt awful. It's a great sermon illustration, and, uh, but everyone thought it was Carrie on the plane, which was great, so it turned out perfectly. And then we get off the plane, and we get to the airport, and we walk off, and I see the faces of all 100 people that were waiting to get on that plane because we were 45 minutes to an hour late, and it hit me, I better be careful with my speech. Um, but I'll continue to pick on Carrie just because that's what I enjoy doing. All right, so we're in the book of Proverbs. Last five points that I want to bring from the book of Proverbs. The one we will close out with really sums up the book of Proverbs. The uh, book of Proverbs was written by Solomon. Remember, Solomon was the smartest man ever to exist. He was leading God's people in the Old Testament, and he, asked, he did something for God, a sacrifice that was great. And God says, ask whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Solomon says, give me wisdom to lead your people. And God goes, wow, that's such a great ask. I will make you wiser than any person who has ever existed or will ever exist. And Solomon had this knowledge, this understanding 
Although towards the end of his life, he didn't follow it like he should have. But he writes the book of Proverbs and gives us these wise sayings that we see and through parables, um, through metaphors, through illustrations, we see how people should live with biblical wisdom. We see that we should avoid foolish people, spend time around wise people. Um, Wisdom is not hidden. It cries out in the streets. It naturally shows itself to ourselves. And so as we look at these five random pieces of wisdom, five areas of our life, I want us to focus in on these five. And if we can get these five right, maybe our whole life won't be perfect, but our life will be better off if we can hit these five areas of our life. Of course, there were some good Proverbs that just didn't make the top five that I need to share with you today. Uh, First one that I I remembered that I want to share is in chapter 19, verse 4. It says, What wealth brings many friends... Poor, many friends desert him. Guys, if you want more friends, buy yourself a truck or buy yourself a boat, and you will find that you have more friends than you know what to do with. Chapter 19, verse 13, a quarrelsome wife is like constant dripping. We'll leave that there, but thank you for not amening that, gentlemen. Appreciate that. It has some stuff to say about us too, but we will uh, we'll ignore that. And then 17, verse 6, it says, Your children's children are a crown to the age. It may not feel like your grandchildren are a crown, but your grandchildren are a crown to you. Love them, be their cheerleaders, and most importantly, pray, pray, pray for your grandchildren. Your grandchildren face more difficult decisions on their way to school than what we did on a Friday night looking for trouble. There is more problems that come their way than we've ever had to deal with them. Please pray for your children and your grandchildren. All right, here we go. First one, chapter 15, verse number one. A gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. The first area we can focus in as believers with godly wisdom is with our speech. Be careful with our speech. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. I'm happy to see that gentleness has returned to our community. We were missing gentleness for quite some time. When we were locked up and we were kind of like caged animals and we were very harsh people from time to time. We had opinions on everything. And I saw many people that came out and just were very harsh only to call back the next day and say, listen, I am so sorry. I don't know where that came from. Frustration has built up with inside me and I just spewed that out. I didn't mean for it to come across the way it did. I didn't mean for that to sound the way it did. And for a while there was this harshness, but it seems like this gentleness has returned. We talk to each other how we're caring with one, each, one another, how we love for one another. Another verse in chapter 13, verse 3, it says, The one who guards his mouth protects his life. The one who opens his lips invites his own ruin. As I, I'm reminded that many times as believers, our biggest problems we face are things that we didn't say, but more importantly, things that we shouldn't have said. Like, I don't know where that came from. That wasn't in me. I don't know why when I got cut off on 270, the first thing I did was to yell and scream. Like, I I can be 30 minutes late to work. It's not a big deal. I remember that when I was in college, I was uh, coming home for break, and we would work and, and try to make as much money as we could during the summers. And I had the opportunity to clean out the paint bins in the Ford GM and Chrysler buildings. 
We, where they would paint the cars, the paint would drip off while it was drying, and it would be like Laffy Taffy just covered on everything. And we'd go in there with big, powerful spray guns with large PSI that would be able to, to take off a foot or a toe and, and cut through wood. It was just this big, powerful water gun that was a lot of fun. And we were working 18 hours a day, six, seven days a week, making lots of overtime. It was awesome. Learned a lot about taxes that summer, which wasn't as awesome, but it is what it is. And so while I was in there, I was at Liberty University studying for ministry, still dating my soon-to-be wife, Amy, and I found myself in an atmosphere I wasn't normally used to. I learned words that I didn't even know existed. There were phrases that were said that I didn't know you could say that way. There were cuss words used as verbs and nouns and all kinds of just, it was, it was eye-opening. But I didn't allow that to affect my life because I still was studying for ministry, working hard, living for the Lord. Later on that summer, I'm watching a basketball game in the playoffs, and it might have been towards the finals, end of June. And um, after a few weeks of being around that, I, I haven't experienced anything different but I'm there watching the basketball game at my sister's house. And my sister's there, my brother-in-law's there, my mom and dad are there, Amy's there. And I'm watching this game, and with, we're down by three points with about five seconds left. And the guy gets ready to shoot a three-pointer, but fakes it, dribbles in, and as time expires, shoots a two-pointer and makes it to lose by one. And I jump off the couch and I say, what the heck is he doing? Except I didn't say the word Heck. There was a different word that came out, one that had not come out of my mouth ever. And as soon as that happened, I looked at my mom and dad, and their eyes were wide open. <laughs> I looked at my sister and her husband, and their eyes were wide open. I looked to my wife, and she kind of had a grin, like, oh, you're in trouble. <laughs> and I immediately said, guys, I don't know where that came from. I am so sorry. I don't know how that happened. That's not part of my vocabulary. I'm training for the ministry. What if I were to say that from the stage, from the pulpit one time? Like, God, don't allow this into my life. And that's when it hit me. What's around me eventually will come inside. Is it, is it a sin to miss church? No. But as we come to church, we worship, we put the things of the Lord, the Bible into our lives, that thing is around us. That stuff comes in us, which eventually flows out of us. And so be careful what speech we allow around us. Be careful what we allow around our lives, because what we put into our lives eventually will come out. That's why we talked about the importance last week of biblical literacy. We talked about the utmost for his highest. And if you were here second service, you may not have gotten any because I think first service took most of them. But there were some daily breads out at the uh, counter. And I hate to say it, but they're gone again today. So start going to first service, guys. I don't know what else to say. Like, everything's gone. But we talk about those that have never put any of the Word of God in your life, start putting a little bit. Read those devotions for, for maybe 45 seconds to a minute. Start putting those things in your life. Those that are doing that, you know what? Start reading your Bible a little bit more. Put more of that into your life. Those that are already doing more of that, put even more and do some Bible studies on Right Now Media and understand this, this word that God has written for us to live our lives to follow after him. And we see as we put that into our lives, it starts to make a difference for us. Not only do we ask for biblical literacy, but we're talking about how we want to disciple you this summer. In July, we're talking about our grow class. How do we study the Bible? 
How do we put these spiritual disciplines in our, in our lives? The end of July, we're talking about our serve class, that you're part of the kingdom of God. How do you fit into with your spiritual gift? What can you do for the kingdom of God? And finally, the last two Wednesdays, and the first two Wednesdays in August, talking about our mission class. What does it mean to be on mission every single day of your life? Not going to a far land, but where you are right here, right now, on a daily basis. What does it mean to be on mission? Not only do we have to be careful with our speech and have biblical wisdom with our speech, but the second area that we look at is in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a difficult time. The second area that I think we need biblical wisdom is with our friends. If you've been friends with someone since birth and they're living different from you, you don't stop being friends with that person, but you limit that person's influence in your life. You limit the, maybe the time that you'll spend with them because we become the people that we hang around with. If your friends are doing stupid things, chances are eventually you'll start doing stupid things as well. If you find good Christian community within the church, chances are you will seek the things of God as well in your life. Friends are good. They're, they're great, and we all need friends. In Scripture, it tells us 60 one another's that we should be doing as Christian brothers and sisters, and we can't do that by ourselves. We have to be in community. It says that a brother is born for a difficult time. We all will go through difficult times, and it's good to have that Christian brother that Christian sister, that maybe not everything's okay, but you can be okay in the midst of everything and chaos. And we also need some friends from time to time just to call us out and say, stop being stupid. Stop doing that. Put that down. Get to church. Do the right thing. But specifically, I think there's three types of friends that we should have within our lives. And these aren't in your notes. You can write them in the side there. But if you want to, I think three different types of friends we should have in our lives. The first one is a Paul. If you look in Scripture, Paul was a mentor to many people. He was kind of that leader of people. Of course, he started out persecuting Christianity. He was completely against Jesus Christ had a salvation experience, was discipled for a couple of years, and then went out planting a lot of churches. In fact, most of the New Testament, if you look at the New Testament, Paul wrote it. Take away the Gospels and the stuff at the end, everything in the middle, Paul wrote. And he would go to certain places and spend like two years there just building up the church and starting a church and, and putting in deacons and putting in a pastor and getting it all set, and then he would go somewhere else and plant another church. And then he'd go somewhere else and plant another church. And then he'd write letters back to these guys. Hey, I love you. I'm thinking about you. I'm praying about you. Stop doing this stupid thing. Realize that you're saved by grace, not by works, okay? But I love you. Keep up the good work. And Paul was the mentor to many people. He was a mentor to people like Timothy, which I think we all need a Timothy in our lives. Someone that we're pouring our lives into. Someone that is maybe younger or maybe spiritually younger than ourselves where we can take time, maybe not our whole life, but maybe a year, and you can just pour your life into that person. It's called like an apprenticeship almost. You know, I, I think before college existed and, and basically you just worked on the farm or you found somebody that did something and you wanted to be like them, so you shadowed them for a while. You found out what they did and how they did it and why they did it. You wanted to be exactly like them. That's what the disciples were. You look at the 12 disciples in the beginning of Scripture, they weren't anything great, but they said that Jesus person, he is from God, I want to be like him. 
I want to know the things that he knows. I want to do the things that he does. I want to teach the things that he teaches. And so they followed after him and were discipled by him. And it says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul's writing to Timothy as his mentor and says, listen, Timothy, the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, go and teach other faithful men who can teach others. And there's this this process of continually teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching faithful people. You know, I think about it when my life's all said and done, what will my great, great, great grandchildren know about me? Maybe through social media and Google, maybe they'll know every meal I've ever eaten that I've posted. Maybe they'll know every trip I've ever been. I, I don't know how much of this stuff they'll even know or even care. So I won't have an impact with my great, great, great grandchildren. But I think about this. I can have an impact on my children, who if God should bless, my son turns 18 years old today, maybe like years and years and years and years down the road, he can have kids, like long time. And he can influence them, and they can influence their kids and influence their kids. So I'll never meet my great-great-grandchildren, but maybe I can have an influence on them. I think about my grandmothers who were in the church every day of their lives, every Sunday, I should say. They've never met my children. If they did, I think Zach was like three years old for one of them before she died. They have an, she has an impact on those kids. The impact of seeing her with her daily bread and her Bible, drinking coffee when we spent the night over there the next day. You know, the impact she had of placing an importance on church that impacted my dad, which impacted me, which now impacts my children. I think the influence that we have, and we may not go out and lead conferences to disciple people, but there are people all around you, in your family, in your life, that we can be ministering to. You know, I think about um, the third friend that we should have is a Barnabas. Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. Guys, we all need encouragement. With the stress we face today, I think we need encouragement more than ever. The problem is you can't go up to someone and say, hey, would you like to be my encourager? But what you can do is you can find someone to encourage. And it's not a question of who needs encouragement. The answer is everybody. Maybe who needs it more than others, but we all need some sort of encouragement. We, we need to be pouring into the lives of those around us. I, I can think of your children. Even if they're grown children, they need encouragement. They may look like they have everything together, but they need encouragement. Your children, with the stress they face, they need encouragement. Young people need encouragement. So we need a Paul, a Timothy, and a Barnabas. And let me say with your Paul, you may never meet your mentor. You know, I think some of the greatest mentors I've had, I've sat face-to-face with, been able to ask them questions, be able to go back to them. Pastor Frank talks about his mentor at a church down in Tennessee that he met one time. But this guy just had an influence in him, and he was able to, to go back and forth with and read his stuff and listen to his sermons. Now, obviously, he had others, Mr. Lilly and other people, but a lot of times our mentors may be people that we don't have a regular day-to-day relationship with. For some of you, maybe it's the utmost for us highest, Oswald Chambers, who's been dead for years and years and years, is now speaking into your life with some of the things he's teaching. Maybe it's a, a parent or grandparent that has served the Lord for a long time that is now pouring into your life. But we all need friends in our lives, and I would encourage you to be a Paul, to be a Barnabas, to find a Timothy in your life so we can pass on the things that we've learned to other people. Amen? All right, here we go. 
The next one is the hardest one. If you're going to fail any of them, it would be this one. Um, I believe it is the hardest one because it's the most impactful. I think if we can get this one right as husbands and wives, it affects not only our individuals, it affects our children, our family, those around us. But the third one we should have is found in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. It says, A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a wife who keeps causing shame is like rottenness in his bones. The third area where we need biblical wisdom is with marriage. Can't talk about marriage in Proverbs without mentioning Proverbs 31. It talks about the virtuous woman. If you want to find a virtuous woman, it gives the examples of what she does, how she provides for the family, how she leads within the family, and what she does. But I want to tell you, I'm going to flip the script today. I'm not even going to talk about the wife, right? If you want a Proverbs 31 woman, you can't be a Proverbs 15, 21 man, which says foolishness brings joy to one without sense. You can't be foolish if you want a Proverbs 31 virtuous woman. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Are we capable of this? No. Christ loves the church. He, he loves to you know about the church, but he loves the universal church, which is made up of Christians. He gave his life for Christians. And when we as a church turn our back on God, you know what God does? He still loves us. He still cares for us. still would have died for us in spite. Husbands, when our wives try to change the channel in the midst of a game because a new Hallmark's coming on? Well, I need clarification on that. Maybe, that. maybe Scripture speaks a little bit better to that. I don't know. But we're called to love our wives, to self-sacrifice. We're bound by love. Husbands, I would challenge you to go home and ask your spouse today, is this marriage a source of rich fulfillment and joyfulness to the Lord? Is this marriage a, a source of joyfulness to you? I knew I was preaching this. Wrote this sermon on Wednesday or Thursday. And so on Saturday, I asked my wife this question. She's sitting over here. That's why I'm looking over here. <laughs> and I asked this question to her, and she laughed. And um, I didn't know what the laugh was for. And frankly, I don't want to know what the laugh is for until after service is over, and then I'll have her explain more. But man, do, does our spouse find joy in the way we're leading men? Is, is it something that they say, yes, I want to be a follower of Christ with you as you follow Jesus? We love as Christ loved the church. Um, maybe you're here today and say, you don't know my wife, and I, I don't. I'm just telling you what Scripture says. We love as Christ loved the church. Husbands, have you dedicated your life to your wife? Have you dedicated to the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of your wife. Now listen, spouses, help us out because we don't know what we're doing. We're not capable of doing what we're called to. We don't understand these emotions all the time. That's why when you go to a wedding and you see two young guys, two young people getting married and you see the wife up there and she gets through the vows, the makeup is not running, it's perfect, there's no tears. She knew the emotion was coming and she was prepared for it and she was there smiling and got through it. On the other hand, some 20-year-old guy gets up there, and these emotions come. He doesn't know how to deal with them. He's never experienced emotions before. And they come, and he's just this blubbering case trying to get through the vows. Have you seen that before? Or the, the, the husband just can't get through it. 
Maybe he's scared. I don't know. But, but, but help us out. We're, we're still learning. We're still trying to figure these things out. But I know what it says in Genesis 1.29. It says, leave your mother and your father and become one flesh. That's our goal. We're like-minded, one flesh. And anytime I talk about marriage, I want to share these three little um, scenarios that I think help marriages so much more. So some of you have heard these before, but I think they're so powerful that within your marriage, think about these three things. The first one is the love bank. When you begin a marriage, you open up a checking account symbolically. And right when you get married, there is a zero balance. And I tell you guys, we need, and ladies, there need to be more deposits into that bank account than withdrawals from that bank account. We deposit by buying flowers. Kroger Special, $5. They're awesome. It's a thought that counts. It's about, hey, vacuuming when you're not asked to vacuum, guys. It's about doing dishes. Uh, there's, there's, never mind, we're not even going there. We're coming back over here. Those little I love you notes that we used to write when we were dating, all of a sudden life has happened and we forget to do those things. But those little deposits have to happen on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, because there are going to be withdrawals. Uh, the, the foursome in front of us went a little too long at the golf, uh, golf uh, place today, so we'll run it a little bit late. That's a withdrawal. Hey, I forgot to clean up my clothes that were scattered all over, and I didn't clean up the dishes. So there's going to be these natural withdrawals that happen within the relationship, but making sure the deposits outweigh the withdrawals and just continue the love bank. The second one, protect home plate. I love baseball, and baseball is great. Uh, the thing about baseball is you can get on first base, second base, third base, and none of that matters. You could have people on base every single inning of the game and not score a run, and none of those people made any difference. But it makes a difference when they cross the home plate. And there are certain times in the game where the catcher has to take a stance in front of home plate and know that the ball is coming from outfield or maybe the infield and the catcher has to stand there and protect home plate. It means they're waiting for the ball to come and this runner is going to come run right into them and run them over trying to get to home plate. And it's not all the time, but every once in a while, as he's standing up there waiting for it, he knows it's painful, he knows it's going to hurt, but he knows his team's better for it because he takes that hit. And he grabs the ball, tags the runner, gets knocked over, and he protected home plate and saved a run. Guys, this is not always within our marriage, but there are certain times within our marriages, guys and ladies, we have to step up. We have to protect home plate. Is that when the dishes are done? No, that, that's an argument. That's not, that's not protecting home plate. When clothes are left on the floor, no, that's not protecting home plate. When certain things happen within the marriage where you're looking at inappropriate things you should not be in looking at, somebody has to step up and say, this will not happen. We are not allowing this into our life. Or, or certain relationships build outside of the marriage and someone's spending too much time with, with someone of the opposite sex and you have to say, this will not happen. That friendship you have has to end. That work relationship you have either ends or you find another job because our family is more important than that. Protecting home plate comes every once in a while. And it's painful. It hurts. There's going to be arguments. There's going to be uh, discussions about it. But it's worth it. It's worth it for the marriage. The third little homily, or whatever you want to call it, is from a great theologian from the 1990s. Uh, he wrote a song that you have to pray just to make it today. It's one of my favorite rappers back in the 90s, MC Hammer. You've got to pray just to make it today. Anybody remember the 90s rapper MC Hammer? Anybody? Yep, yep. The baggy pants and the whole, like, nope, no. Nope. Baptist church, we don't dance. Nope. 
We know the success of marriages is not great, but I know that statistically it says the couples that pray together every single day have a 99% success rate. As I'm guilty of not praying as often as I should, we pray for every meal, three, four, five, six times a day. Lots of meals in our house. I tell people our quiet hours are from 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. because I got kids going to bed at 1, other kids waking up at 4. It's like the college dorms. I love it. If you guys want to move in, it's great. Just, just bring food with you. It's awesome. But you have the triple bond physically. Hey, uh, my spouse looks good. I, I enjoy being around my spouse. Emotionally, we, we, we relate to things and, and, and we're, we're common-minded, but then spiritually, we're on the same page that we're giving our life to Jesus Christ. And everything that we do surrounds ourselves with him being the focal point of our lives. And I would encourage you, if you're not praying together, pray together. Even if it's 10 seconds before you go to bed, even if it's when you're by yourself at 4.30, with the two of you guys, 4.30 in the afternoon, just begin that. It's going to be awkward at first, but it'll be life-changing in the end. Marriage. A lot to say about marriage because marriage is difficult. If you married for more than one minute, you know that it is difficult. Satanically, he does not want it to work out for us, but I know that biblical wisdom tells us the whole family is better off because of a good marriage. Amen? All right, here we go. Number four. Number four, we see in Proverbs 17, 22. It says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. It's healthy to be cheerful. It's the best medicine. And I would encourage you to be cheerful, but sometimes it's tough to be cheerful. Sometimes your heart's been broken. Sometimes things are happening in your life that don't make sense. Sometimes there's self-inflicted pain. Sometimes there's pain inflicted by someone close to you, and it's difficult to have a cheerful heart. If things aren't going right in our lives, that we can have this cheerfulness robbed from us. And my goal for you is to change your perspective. Don't allow cheerfulness to be based upon the things going around us. But allow cheerful to be, be cheerful based on the things that will happen to us or have happened to us. I go back to the, the old hymn, count your many blessings, name them one by one. God's been good to you in the past. You can't come up here and tell me you're a believer and God hasn't been good to you in the past. I won't believe you. You may have forgotten it. You may not be reminded of it. But I guarantee you, God has been good to all of us in the past, starting with the fact that he saved us and loved us in the midst of where we were in our sinfulness. If we're reminded of that, we can see how he's taking care of us. There's going to be ups, there's going to be downs, but you're going to see how God just spoke to you some way where you didn't realize it, but later on you look back and like, so thankful for God. So thankful that he stepped in there. I love getting on Facebook, and I don't post much, but I love looking at my Facebook memories. I love seeing the fun things that we did. Because you don't post bad things. Anything in your memories is going to be good. So you, you post good things, but just to see the things we've done, see the growth of our children, see the growth of our relationship, see what's happened at church. It's good to look back on those things and be thankful for them. I would encourage you to find things to remind you of those things in your life and put them around your house. Very simply, I have a flag and I have like a boxing bell in my house. One of them's for my grandfather who died when I was 12. The other one was for my grandfather who died before I was born. But they're just memories of, yeah, that was my grandpa's flag. That's my grandpa's bell. We have little rocks in our garden to remind us of vacations that we've been on. 
We have pictures to remind us of our, our marriage, and, and we have things in our life just to be reminded of the goodness of God. And I would encourage you, when something good happens in your life, make a monument, make a stone, put something up in your life that you can be reminded of God's goodness, because sometimes we're going to forget, sometimes the world's going to get us, and we're going to be so focused on something else, we're going to forget the goodness of God. But if we want a cheerful heart, we remind what he's done, done in our lives. But then also we're reminded of our future. This is not our home. We're here today, gone tomorrow. We're like a vapor, just gone real quick. We're reminded that we're just going through this earthly experience, but we're really spiritual beings that will spend eternity in either heaven or hell. And I am thankful because of what I did at the age of 12, that I will spend an eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. So when your days feel heavy, things hurt, and there's more month than there is, or there's more bills than there is money, and you're physically hurting and you're starting to see more people on the other side of this life in heaven, just remember that we get to experience that one day too. We'll be reunited with loved ones and spend an eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. Amen? Amen. Last one. Here we go. Proverbs 16.3. The last one, I think it's the most important one. Commit your activities to the Lord and your plans will be established. Very simply, our life. Our whole life should revolve around this biblical wisdom. Ten sermons, probably five points per sermon. We looked at 50 different points over the last six months when I've preached. Probably could have skipped the last 49 and just got down to this one because this sums everything up. But there's been some funny illustrations, so good, good for us. All right, here we go. Um, give our undivided attention to the Lord. If we're giving him our life, we're giving him our undivided attention. Yes, there's going to be other fun things that happen in our lives, but our undivided attention. One of the things that Satan wants to do is he wants to keep us busy or keep us off track so that we can't focus on the things that he wants us to do. And then sometimes you just, you just do kind of stupid things. Maybe not sinful things, but stupid things. And we're not living our singular focused life like we should. I remember in middle school and high school when I would get in trouble at school for maybe stupid things like jumping out of a second-story window during class while the teacher wasn't looking or <laughs> setting some plastic desks on fire just to see if it would burn or if it would melt, uh, going to 7-Eleven during the day just to see if anybody would catch me, which I don't think they did. Um, but what would happen is when I would get in trouble for these little things, insignificant things, guys, this illustration for anyone under 30 makes no sense. Because uh, we didn't have cell phones back then. We had like a landline. You had like one phone number for the whole house and it was connected with a cord. And I remember getting home from school around 3.30 and just waiting for that phone to ring when the punishment would be dealt out. And I remember watching cartoons or whatever was going on and the phone would ring and I'd, I'd wonder, is that my teacher finally calling my parents to get me in trouble? And no, my mom would have a smile on her face, so I was good. And then the phone will ring a little bit later, and the same thing. She's still smiling. Everything's good. But it seemed like after dinner, around that 7, 7.30 time, the phone would ring, and one of my parents would pick up the phone, and they'd say, oh, he did what? <laughs> and it's at that point I knew I was in trouble. And it wasn't just at 7.30 where I felt bad and guilty, but it was the moment I got home knowing that punishment would eventually be handed down. And so that whole time where I should have been enjoying my snacks and my cartoons, I'm looking over my shoulder. Is it time to get caught now? 
Is this now the time where I'm going to be in trouble? And, and just having that on my mind all the time. And I think some of the most unhappy people in this world are people that are not unbelievers because they're living the way they're supposed to be living. Whatever feels good, do it. Whatever is right in your eyes, do. But as believers, we have a standard to live by. And when we don't live by that standard, we're going against the grain. And we're looking over our shoulder. Am I getting caught? God, is punishment coming down? Our undivided attention, where we allow no sample of sin in our life, no little thing where we just kind of stick our foot over here just to see what this sin feels like, staying away from that as far as we can and being devoted to the things of the Lord. We commit our activities to the Lord. And if you're like me, you have to recommit them and recommit them and recommit them and continue to commit them to the Lord. And so maybe you're here today, and I always tell people you're the best of the best. If you're here today at church, like you've, you've decided to put real clothes on, to come to church, to, to sing, to maybe drop off your kids in the, in the nursery and come and hear the Word of God. Nothing against you guys that are at home or on vacation. Continue to live stream. That's awesome. But you guys are pretty awesome in here. And maybe you've been here 52 weeks in a row, and, and you've got this figured out that you're not sampling sin you're staying away from that. You're not looking over your shoulder because you're living for the Lord. You're reading the Word of God. You've experienced these biblical principles in your life. Well, I was reminded of this devotional this past week, utmost first highest, June 8th. It says, what's next to do? What's next to do? You've got things figured out. You, you, you've given your life to God. You're studying. You're learning. You're following. Well, here's what it says. If you yourself do not cut the lines that tie you back to the dock, God will have to use the storm to sever them and to send you out to sea. Oswald Chambers, utmost for us heights. You guys probably didn't get any because first service stole them all. But what he's saying is like you're a boat and everything's good in the harbor. Things are great. You're seeing your friends. Life is good. You're studying the word of God. You're not involved in sin. Everything is great in your life. Be careful. Because God does not call us to sit in pews, to sit in these padded seats, he calls us to do something for the kingdom. He says, be careful if you're, you've tied yourself up to the dock where life is comfortable and good. It says, you either untie yourself or he's going to send a storm to untie those knots and send you out to sea. And it goes on to say, if you believe in Jesus, you are not to spend all of your time in the calm waters just inside the harbor, full of joy, but always and always being tied to the dock. You have to get out past the harbor into the great depths of God to begin to know the things for yourself, to begin to have spiritual discernment. As we're not called to sit here and just learn and learn and learn. I believe some of the most gifted people that God has ever gifted on this planet to lead, to do Bible studies, to do great things for him are people we'll never hear about because they were too afraid of failure. They were too afraid to go out on their own. And I believe God puts things in our lives that sometimes just sever those relationships and send us out to sea. And either we sever them or things will come our way. And so my challenge first and foremost is if, if you're not a believer here today, man, it's very simple. Just come to a point in your life, say, God, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong. I believe in your son, Jesus, and I ask him into my life. But if you are a believer and you're sitting here week after week after week, and you're not involved in ministry, I would say be careful. Something's going to come to make you uncomfortable, to move you to where you should be.